Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, you are listening, as you probably know, to Talking France. On this week's episode, we will look at what happens next in France's latest political crisis... We'll explain the downfall of France's most famous actor, or ogre, and also find out whether French schools could soon introduce compulsory uniforms. And we'll have much more, including an explanation for how we can tell the thousands of elected politicians in France apart. It's something to do with what they wear and how they wear it. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Joining me on the front line this week are the team from the local France, Emma Pearson, Jen Mansfield, as well as our politics expert, John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, John, good to have you back with us again. Are you all good? Yeah. Anybody been in trouble this week? Anyone been arrested, committed any crimes that we should tell listeners about? Uh, loads of people have, but none of us here. We've had a very blameless That's what week. we're after. Right, good. We're good to go on then. Let's get straight into the latest political crisis gripping France's government, it's fair to say. And well, we didn't quite see this one coming. Well, not quite as quickly anyway. It's all because of this immigration bill, which has been around for a long time now. This bill has proved problematic for President Emmanuel Macron and his interior minister, Gérald Damanin. And it's all blown up this week sooner than expected. Emma, explain for us what's happened. So Monday evening, debates were finally due to start on this controversial immigration bill, which we've been talking about for months now in the Assemblée Nationale. But before they could begin, a Green MP tabled a motion called a motion de refuse, which basically allows MPs to vote down the bill before debates even started. And unexpectedly, that motion won a majority, only just, it was 265 to 270, but it did. And so that bill is, for now at least, dead in the water. And the fate of one bill perhaps wouldn't matter so much in a normal parliamentary term, but Emmanuel Macron's government has been operating without an overall majority in parliament since the summer of 2022. And this puts them in kind of a bit more of a vulnerable position. Now, there are options to revive this bill through various parliamentary processes, and it looks like this is what the government will do. Macron himself is reportedly determined to press ahead with it and to find a slightly altered version that will get through the parliament. But the whole sort of process has reignited this debate about the fragile position of the government. And we've seen more calls for Macron to call fresh parliamentary elections. In fact, one of his own MPs described it as a serious political crisis. OK, what about uh, Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin? He's often feels like he's been about to lose his place in the cabinet. Has he clung on again to his job? Uh, he has, yes. He offered his resignation uh, right. to Macron on Monday night after this bill fell. Macron refused. Macron told Darmanin and got a few of his ministers to get and he reportedly told them to make proposals to remove obstacles and produce an effective text. Right. And I've got to say, I love it when the boss just says, just make this happen. You're like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Fair enough. I think this is a good moment to bring in John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, in your latest column for the local France, which is available on our website, you said the real losers in this debacle were the French people and not Macron. What did you mean by that, John? Well, it's a curious fact, Ben, that uh, I think 70% of French people were against the pension law, uh, which was pushed through earlier this year uh, by constitutional manoeuvre, if you like. And so you can say they were losers from that. 70% of French people, according to polls I've seen, were in favour of this immigration law. But it was blocked by the opposition parties in the name of their different interpretations of what the people 
wanted. So, in a sense, yes. I mean, this is a law which which was popular or ex- accepted. It was a balanced law, tried to be both firm and fair, and I think people thought it was necessary, and yet it's now been blocked, maybe not forever, but has been blocked essentially for a sort of political rather than political reasons. I mean, this is manoeuvres by the left and right acting together, rarely, to embarrass the Macron government, and especially the interior minister dominant, which they were extremely successful in doing. John, what happens next then after this uh, mini-crisis for the, the government? Yeah, it's a mini-crisis. I think that's a good way of putting it, because it's not a big constitutional crisis. This is a, they lost the vote on whether or not the bill should ever go for debate. It wasn't a, a sort of reverse for the government in, in a more serious constitutional sense than that. Macron, as I understand it, has decided to push ahead. He's asked for the the law to be sent to a joint committee of the two houses of parliament early next week. He wants it to come out of that in a form which would be probably slightly tougher and therefore appeal to the centre-right more, maybe not so tough. It's going to annoy his own left-leaning supporters in the centrist alliance in parliament. And he hopes that that can even go through the parliament completely by the end of the year, which I think is well, by before Christmas, and then maybe possibly uh, early in the new year. If it doesn't, if it can't do that, if either the committee rejects it or is unable to find a uh, compromise or the parliament clearly isn't going to vote for it, the bill will simply be withdrawn. There's no question, I think, of him either using his Article 493 powers to force it through, as he did with pension reform, or calling an early election. I think either of those are out. He, I don't think, regards this immigration law absolutely essential to his agenda. He thinks other things are more important, including possibly changes in employment law next year to save his promise to reduce unemployment to this sort of phenomenal rate of full employment, 5.5% by 2027, which looks really threatened at the moment. He's much more concerned about that, I think, than immigration law. So I I think there will be a huge crisis over this. It's a mini crisis, as you say. Thanks, John. And a reminder for listeners, you can read more about what John thinks on the latest political crisis on our website at thelocal.fr. Now, when you ask someone to name France's biggest and most famous actor, the chances are they will say the name Gérard Depardieu. Listeners will no doubt have seen him in at least one of his 170-odd films he's made over the years, including Green Card and his leading role perhaps in the 1991 film Cyrano de Bergerac, or perhaps the Asterix and Obelisk franchise. Depardieu has been in a new film and it's making headlines in France for all the wrong reasons. Jen, tell us about it. So it's a documentary called Depardieu, The Fall of an Ogre, and it was aired on France 2. The documentary showed never-before-seen footage of Depardieu while filming a different documentary in North Korea in 2018, and that documentary was never aired. There were several instances where he made lewd comments to and about women, even though he knew he was being filmed. And there was one particularly shocking scene where he makes sexually inappropriate comments about a young girl while watching her ride a horse. I have to say I watched some of it and it was quite disturbing. Mm, Depardieu is such a household name in France. What's been the reaction to this film, Jen? Well, it depends on who you talk to in France. Um, Some people in the film industry have come out in support of him, arguing that the film just shows him making kind of crude or vulgar jokes that many people make. And other French film stars have taken this moment to come out in support of victims. Mm, When you say victims, Jen, obviously you're referring to the fact that it's not the first time Depardieu's behaviour towards women has been in the spotlight. No, it's definitely not the first time. So several women have accused him of rape and sexual assault, and he is the subject of an ongoing investigation that started in 2018 after actress Charlotte Arnaud accused him of rape and sexual assault. 
Earlier this year, Mediapart, which is the French investigative news outlet, published an article saying that he'd been accused of harassing, groping, or sexually assaulting at least 13 young women. Since the release of the documentary, however, that number has gone up to 16. Depardieu himself has always denied these allegations, and in October, he published an open letter in the French newspaper Le Figaro, where he said, I want to tell you the truth, I have never, ever abused a woman. It's interesting. I was just uh, starting work this morning in my usual cafe and I sit next to a guy who is a scriptwriter for French movies. And I asked him what Depardieu means to France and kind of all this story about him. And he basically just said Depardieu kind of incarnates something really gaulois and described him using the word grivois, which I think I've never heard before. But I think it's irreverent and bawdy, indecently funny kind of thing. And that's why he kind of endeared him to the French. And he talked about his role in the kind of in the films. And he says, basically said Depardieu was like a money machine for French films. You know, you you put Depardieu in there, the film is going to make money because he's such a big name. And because he was so valuable, directors, producers, many in the film industry just kind of turned a blind eye to what he did. And he basically said, look, they helped create this monster. And once this monster's created, it's hard to bring him down. And especially when so much money's involved. And we know over the years, Depardieu's made negative headlines, you know, even for outside what he's done in the in the film industry. You know, he was on a story for peeing in a bottle in a, in a plane that caused shock in front of passengers. He's had close links to Vladimir Putin, who granted him Russian citizenship. He moved his address to Belgium to apparently avoid paying so much tax in France. Jen, has he got any kind of future, you know, after these kind of latest accusations? Well, it has been almost six years since Arnaud accused Depardieu of rape. And in that time, there have been more allegations against him. We should say that none of these other allegations have involved legal action against the actor, but he has become more polarizing. And even in the time that he's become more polarizing, Depardieu's career has carried on. In 2022 alone, he acted in seven different TV shows and films. So is this documentary the last straw? I mean, it remains to be seen since the documentary aired. Some people in the entertainment industry have come out saying that they'll never work with him again, like the director Fabian Otignet, uh, who made the film Disco with Depardieu in 2008. And the head of France Television, Manuel Adui, said that it was no longer necessary to celebrate the actor. And he said that France Television was going to review its distribution plans. So, mm. like I said, it remains to be seen. Indeed. Thanks, Jen. According to Google, one of the top questions people ask about schools in France is, why don't they? Do you know what it is, guys? Uh, stop smoking outside. Good, that's good. No, that's number two, I think. No, it's why don't they wear school uniform? French state schools, for the most part, have never really had compulsory uniforms. But could things be about to change? Earlier this week, France's education ministry unveiled the details for what it calls a large-scale experiment to see whether school uniforms could work. Now, it's only going to be tested in a few parts of the country, but it's surprisingly controversial. Before we find out about the experiment, why does the government want to do this, Jen? So there are a few reasons. The biggest one, I would say, is secularism, and that is laicite. It calls for state neutrality and means that public officials cannot wear religious signs, and neither can school children when they go to school. Every few years, there is a disagreement over some article of clothing that breaks the rules of secularism. And that was, for example, just a few months ago, the controversy around the abaya. The idea is that uniforms would put an end or at least decrease these disagreements. And then the other side has to do with this attempt to reduce bullying and inequality at school. The topic of bullying has definitely become more salient in the last few months, particularly after a 15-year-old boy named Nicolas died by suicide in September. 
Now, the French prime minister came up with a new anti-bullying plan, and commentators have referenced that maybe school uniforms could be a potential solution. Now, as for the education minister himself, Gabriel Attal, he said that he's divided on the question of the uniform, and he's not sure that it's going to be this miracle solution, but he's in favor of the large-scale experiment just to test its effectiveness. Okay, so tell us about this large-scale experiment. They obviously can't bring it back right across the board for all schools in France, so they're rolling out in certain parts of the country, Jen? Yeah, so... So far, we know that uniforms are going to be rolled out in the towns of Tourcoing, Reims, Nice, and Perpignan, and then the département of Allier and Alpes-Maritimes, and the region of Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes. So that covers a large part of eastern France, including Lyon and Grenoble. These locations were chosen because educational authorities there volunteered to take part in the trial. So the pupils in those areas, meaning kids from primary school to lycée, not maternelle, not the little ones, will start wearing uniforms in September 2024. Basically, the families that are part of this pilot scheme are going to receive a uniform for their children, and that will consist of five polo shirts, two sweaters, and two pairs of trousers. No beret? No beret, unfortunately. (laughs) At this stage, it looks like the uniform is going to be the same for boys and girls. And so far, there's no plan for them to have a different uniform in the summer. Depending on the school or the locality, they might be able to add a little crest or something to represent the area if they want to. Okay, sounds pretty straightforward. Why the controversy then? Well, uniforms are just not really the norm in France, especially when compared to the UK. There's no nationwide policy on uniforms. It's up to individual schools, and the vast majority of state schools don't have any uniform requirement at all. There are a few exceptions, though. So the French overseas uh, territories of Guadeloupe and Martinique, uh, both of those are in the Caribbean. Kids wear uniforms to school. And in mainland France, the kids wearing uniforms tend to be those at private schools, uh, religious schools, or military schools. That being said, a lot of French private schools themselves don't even require uniforms. Historically, there isn't really that much of a precedent of uniforms either. The closest example would probably be smocks. These are the blouses that primary school kids wore until the 1970s, and that was mainly meant to protect their clothes while they were at school. So they weren't really compulsory, and it's not the same as a uniform. Why do people get so angry about the idea of bringing uniforms back in France then? Well, the general backlash has tended to be centered around the cost that this would put on low-income households just to buy the uniforms every year. Based on the plan that France's education minister laid out, though, the uniforms are going to be free for the families during the trial period. Now, we don't know whether or not families are going to be expected to pay in the years going forward if this is extended to the rest of France, but we do know that the total cost of the package that they're using for the trial period is about 200 euro. So we'll see whether or not that's means-tested or whether or not there's some assistance for families to pay for that in the future if it is extended. And in terms of the other controversy or the people that are against uniforms. Some people have said that uniforms would prevent kids from developing or expressing their own identities. And then there are other people that just say there's no evidence that uniforms would increase equality or prevent bullying. Mm, Okay. I mean, I wore a uniform at school and the only people who were allowed in who didn't wear it were the French exchange students, actually, when they used to come over in their denim. They looked pretty cool. We were very jealous of them. But uh, Emma, we'll keep an eye on this story uh, as it develops. Do you think uniforms are going to be brought back in France? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I'd say no. I, I feel like the attachment to sort of individuality mm. is uh, is quite strong. I uh, I can't see them bringing yeah. back any kind of, uh, certainly not British-style yeah, uniform blazers, with a tie and a blazer and all that kind of thing. I just can't see cool French teenagers wearing that. Jen? Yeah, I did see an interview that uh, Emmanuel Macron did a couple months ago where he said that he would be in favour of maybe a more simple uniform, like kids wearing jeans and a T-shirt and a sweater over top to school, but not necessarily polo or something specifically mandated by the state. In 
Interesting. Okay, thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. I'll let you know when we're rolling out our orange uniforms for the local uh, in a couple <laughs> of weeks. Okay, let's move on to a very different subject. Energy, solar power. This week, a giant 37,000 panel solar farm in Val d'Oise, which is to the north of Paris, was given the green light and is expected to be operational by next summer. It will be the largest solar farm in the greater Paris region. With more and more of these so-called solar farms being built, is France going mad for solar power, Emma? Well, France was quite slow to embrace renewable energy like wind, solar, tidal power, mostly because of its large nuclear industry, which means it doesn't use much gas or coal-fired power stations. So its carbon emissions were already lower than many of its members. I was looking just before we started recording at the real-time data that the French grid RTE produces. And today, on the day of recording, 65% of France's power is being generated by nuclear power, 15% by wind power, 13% by hydroelectricity, 6% by gas, and just 5% from solar. Um, Although on the plus side, none is coming from coal or oil-fired sources. Mm. Now, obviously right now it's winter, so solar is producing less power. At the height of summer, up to 20% of France's daily power needs can be produced by solar energy. But France did remain the only EU country not to reach its 2020 target of having 23% of its total power supplied by renewables. But that is changing. As you mentioned, several big new solar farms have been granted planning permission, as well as a lot of much smaller developments and domestic solar power, of course. Okay, you mentioned domestic solar power. I was going to ask you about panels being installed in private homes. Is this taking off as well? Yeah, it is. I mean, the number of private homes that have solar panels on the roof has more than doubled in just a year. In June 2023, 325 1,939 households generated at least part of the electricity they use via solar panels. So it's gone up a lot, but that is still only about 1% of homes in France. So the picture is kind of one of rapid growth, but from a low base. That's basically the same as the overall picture. But solar panels are actually now so popular that manufacturers or installers are struggling to keep up with Mm. the demand. And you'll probably notice if you drive through the French countryside, you will see more and more solar farms, like from huge farm developments to just like a couple of panels in fields. And you might also notice what they call solar barns, uh, which is barns or agricultural buildings that farmers put up on their land with a roof made out entirely out of solar panels. Farmers can get subsidies to help with the installation costs of these. And obviously it helps their own electricity bills. So unsurprisingly, they're quite popular with farmers. You mentioned subsidies there. Presumably the government is providing a bit of help for people who want to install these solar panels. Yeah, the government's quite keen to encourage the growth of the solar industry, along with wind power and hydroelectricity, in order to help France meet its 2050 target of net zero. I mentioned subsidies for for farmers, but you can also get financial aid to help with the cost of installing solar panels on your home. Once the panels are up, then you start to see lower electricity bills. But for many people, the cost of the installation puts them off, but you can get grants to help you with that. Several big businesses or state-run groups like SNCF have announced investment in solar, and that's in order to hit their state-set targets to lower emissions. And there's also a new law coming in that will affect kind of what you see. By 2027, all car parks with more than 80 spaces will have to have solar panels installed. So I mean, that Mm, would cover most supermarket car parks, Mm. for example, like the big hypermarché ones. Um, You do actually already see quite a lot of solar panels at car parks on the service stations of the autoroute and also lorry parks as well. The solar panels kind of play a dual role of they they generate electricity, but they also provide shade, which keeps your car a bit cooler on hot days, which is very welcome when it's August and it's boiling. Mm. Now, presumably you can't just go and build a solar farm without angering the locals, perhaps. Have these proved controversial at all? 
extent, yes. I mean, some people don't like solar farms and wind turbines also, just for aesthetic reasons. They say they sort of destroy the beauty of the countryside. Some people are also put out by a lack of local consultation. So if a farmer wants to create a solar farm on their own land that would generate more than a thousand kilowatts of electricity, they would need a building permit for that. But if they want to create something a bit smaller, then they can just go ahead and do that without consultation. So the neighbours often find that sort of anti-democratic. They don't like being not consulted. For the farmers themselves, you know, there's a balance to be struck between generating solar power and the loss of arable land if you put solar panels on it. Although you can still graze animals on land that has raised solar panels on it. In terms of the politics, uh, I think the majority of France's political parties are in agreement with the acceleration of the green transition and further investment in renewables. But back in the 2022 election, Marine Le Pen made an election pledge that she would halt all new developments of wind turbines. The next elections are the European elections coming up in June 2024. We've already seen some of the pro-EU parties are campaigning on green technology and what they call energy sovereignty, which is like producing your own energy and not being dependent on other countries. But it's not really clear yet what, if any, policies the more right-wing parties will have when it comes to solar or wind power. Mm, Thanks, Emma. Let's bring in John Litchfield again from Normandy to give us a view from rural France. John, have you noticed a, a massive increase in solar farms up in Normandy and have they proved divisive up there? Well, funnily enough, I looked a little at this, and recently I have been seeing many more, especially on farm buildings, you know, which is a very good place to put them on the sides of of barns and things like that, large roofs uh, facing the south. As I understand it, Normandy was way behind other regions. Normans took the view that they didn't get enough sunshine to make this worth it, but the regional government and the local farmers' organisations have been pointing out that it does get as much as the north or the eastern parts of France, which have been pushing ahead quite rapidly with uh, solar power. So there has been a real run on solar panels apparently in the last six months or or a year, especially with the rise in electricity prices that we've seen that has kind of jarred people into action. And farmers especially are investing in them, costing like 17,000 euros apparently to to get a a serious number of panels, but they can repay themselves or get get that money back within five to 10 years, depending on just how many they buy and and how how well exposed they are to the sun. What about the locals? Any fee? of kind of anger towards these new solar farms? No, I, I haven't seen any solar farms. If it really sort of scarred the landscape, that might cause anger. There's a lot of opposition to big wind farms, which there are quite a lot in Normandy, especially finally opposition to the idea to putting a big wind farm off the D-Day landing beaches, which is something I campaigned against years ago as a, someone who, who knows the D-Day beaches well. And I thought that was sort of terrible intrusion in that historic landscape. That is still going ahead, but finally local people have started to complain about that and there are complaints about that on land wind farms as well but i've heard nothing not seen any big uh, solar panel farms in normandy and i've heard no complaints about them and when they're on the sides of the buildings you, you don't really see them until you're close up they don't really alter the architectural beauty of farm buildings at all on to our last topic, and as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a way of telling France's thousands of elected politicians apart. Emma, you've been doing some research on this. I believe you have the answer, and I believe it's something to do with what they wear and how they wear it. Absolutely, yes. This is my favourite New France fact. So right. this week I was watching a film. Uh, it's Lajli's new film, Batiment 5, by the way, which we talked about last week, and it's really, really good. Go and see it. But there's just this throwaway line in it 
about how mares wear their sashes with the colour order on it. And I had never heard this before. So I asked the oracle that is John Litchfield about it. This is the over-the-shoulder sash, the, the, the red, white and blue sash. thing that you'll yeah. see them wear, yeah. Exactly. John had never heard about it either, so I started researching it. I fell down a research rabbit hole and this is what mm. I found. So this is the échappe tricolore, which yeah. is worn by elected officials in France. So échappe is more usually translated as scarf, but yeah, like you said, it's more of a, a sash. Mm. It has three stripes in the tricolore of the French flag, blue, white and red. But there is a key difference. So député, MPs, member of the Assemblée Nationale Mm -hmm. and senators, they wear theirs with the red at the top and then the white and then the blue. But mayors and local councillors wear theirs the other way around, the blue at the top. And that's how you can tell who a person is, whether they're a mayor, whether they're an MP, local or national. And at the end of the sash, there is also some sort of fringing and tassels, which are either gold or silver. And again, the colour is the important bit. So the gold is for an MP, a senator or a mayor, while a deputy mayor or local council member gets a silver fringe. But if the deputy mayor is standing in for the mayor at an official function, they get to wear the gold. Wow. I've seen these elected officials wear these sashes so many times. I've never, ever looked really closely at any difference. But when do they wear them? You know, I've said we see them all the time, but but what, is it just official occasions? Yeah, basically. Uh, you probably won't come as a surprise that there is a strict set of rules around yeah. sash wearing and when you're allowed to wear them. The sash first became part of the outfit of local mayors when the commune system was created in 1790, so they're they're old. They were made compulsory in 1852, and actually the most recent clarification of the rules about sash wearing was in the year 2000, so it's not just a historical thing, we're still very invested in this. They're mostly worn at ceremonial occasions, so you'll see them at like commemorations on Armistice Day, but mayors wear theirs whenever they are exercising their powers as an official of the Republic, which is why they wear them to perform official ceremonies like weddings. And the other place you might see them is on demos or protests, if mayors or MPs go along to a protest, and that's usually opposition MPs, but not always, they will wear their sash to kind of denote their office that they're a, an official of the state. It's definitely more common to wear them over one shoulder as a sash, like you said. And if you do that, it must be over the right shoulder going left. But in fact, officials can wear them around their waist, like a like a belt or a cummerbund as well. Okay, and I'm sure, as ever, there must be some kind of historical reason to explain why elected officials wear sashes. Well, of course, yes. And it's actually, it's the final remnant of what used to be an entire official outfit that mayors had to wear for formal occasions. I found some pictures of this and it looks very special. Uh, it's kind of dark trousers, a dark tailcoat with silver frogging around the, the front and the cuffs. Frogging? You know, silver sort of patterns, like ah, okay, uh, military okay. patterns. A bicorn hat with a feather in it. Bicorn hat? Yeah, like Napoleon's hat. Oh, right. With okay, a big yeah. feather yeah. in it. A sword. Um, you know, a sword is good, well done. Um, and of course, the sash. And obviously, there is no option for a women's outfit because women in France didn't even get the vote or to hold public office until 1945, and this had been phased oh, out by then. Okay. The full outfit, sadly, is no longer compulsory for mayors. I would love to see everyone wearing that. But they can if they want to. And in fact, a couple of mayors in recent years have started wearing it to conduct weddings and at formal occasions just because they like it and they think it looks cool. The mayor of uh, La Verrier, which is in Evelines, um, in the Greater Paris region, and the mayor of Pluha in Brittany, they both do this, which would make your wedding feel quite special, I think, if some mm. guy in a feathery hat and a sword turned up. Fantastic facts about France. That is our job, to bring listeners fantastic facts about France. That is a new one, Emma. I never knew that. Jen, did you know that? 
No, I had never learned that before today. We had lunch with a, a group of journalists this week. Emma, you were bragging about this fact. Did any of them know this fact? No, none of them. This I asked four of the longest almost. serving correspondents in France if they knew this fact and nobody did. Let's, so We uh, should name and shame them. Yeah, we should do. <laughs> but all thanks to Lajli and his excellent yeah, film, great. which is very educational as well as... I'm gonna, I'm gonna go see it. I've been meaning to see it. Well, look, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, John, as always, and thanks to you all for tuning in. And we'll be back with more next week. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>